It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, the home of common sense. And who better to kick us off this week in our brilliantly blue new studio, uh, John Rental from the Independent. Brilliantly blue and orange. It's almost Ukrainian. It is almost Ukrainian, but that was entirely by accident. But uh, it's interesting that you've pointed that out. Actually. I never thought of that, but there we are. Um, welcome uh, to the new Talk TV, which will become properly Talk TV at seven o'clock tonight. Tom Newton-Dunn's got a show, Piers Morgan, of course, Sharon Osbourne. And then I'll be back, you might be pleased to know, at ten o'clock with Daisy McAndrew, analysing how brilliant it all is. Very pleased to, it's pleased really to know good. about that. I've just seen Boy George outside. Yes, I mean, everybody, everybody's here today. It's, it's I mean, all happening. It's all happening, yeah. And also, Chris Evans described me on his own breakfast show this morning as the thinking woman's Piers Morgan, <laughs> which I think I'm definitely putting on my Twitter bio. I think that's got to work for me. Anyway, uh, we've got much to talk about. Shall we start with the Times story about um, Partygate? I know people are sick to death of it, but the Sue Gray well, report some people are. eventually will come out. When, when yeah. is it coming out, by the way? Well, when the police have finished their investigation. I don't so, think they're uh, ever going to finish their investigation, are they? Well, they can't drag it out forever, well, can they? They've I mean, dragged it out for a long time. They have. They have dragged it out for a long time. I mean, this, is, this may be a piece of, um, of rather ingenious expectations management. So, yes. You know, of course, it's, it's, so, it's so toxic yes. when it comes out, of course. Boris Johnson will have no choice but to resign. I believe that when I see it. Yes. Uh, especially when um, what really emerged uh, at the end of last week was that Boris Johnson didn't get a penalty notice for the uh, for the uh, bring your own booze party right. in the Downing Street Garden. Now, if you didn't get one for that, he may not be going. Despite to Despite the fact that a lot of people were saying before those came out that he was going to get one. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So if if he ends up only getting one. For the birthday cake, mm. which most people think was a relatively minor yeah. uh, offence, uh, then I think he's in, he, you know he's in the clear, and uh, so that's possibly why the, the the Sue Gray report has been cranked up. I mean, we've already had the interim conclusions of the Sue Gray yes. report, which were damning enough. I mean, saying there was a, there was a there was a culture which was you know goes up to the top, uh, and suggesting that the prime minister was, was responsible for it. Uh, of uh, of people breaking the rules and uh, drinking too much. Yes. I mean, the funny thing is, I don't know if you managed to see it yesterday, but Sophie Rayworth on uh, with Keir Starmer asking him in some quite sort of pretty marked terms why his event up in the northeast yeah. of England was different. Well, and he struggled, good... he struggled to explain how different it was because it it's doesn't a, seem very different. It's a very good question. Yeah. I mean, I think the main difference is that, uh, you know, Boris, th- these are laws that Boris Johnson introduced. Mm. I mean, obviously, Keir Starmer voted for them and actually a lot of the time wanted stricter laws uh, imposed but right. i think i think it is it is particularly the hypocrisy of, of boris johnson in legislating 
uh, for these restrictions and then breaking the rules himself. That is that makes it particularly yes uh, difficult. But does for him. that not mean though that he is being singled out in a way by the media and also by other politicians in in, in a way which is entirely unfair? Yeah, well, I, uh, you 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 could make that case. I think so. I, I wouldn't particularly. I think, well, I mean, I, I think it's his, own, it's his own fault for legislating. Yes. For no, I agree with that. Restrictions. I agree which, with uh, that. There's also a new parliamentary report coming out, which Simon Cole has been highlighting this morning, uh, in which it says that almost all of the restrictions placed on travel yeah. were pretty pointless. Yes, I think. I think so we're now absolute. running back down the road at 100. You know that meme of. of um, Forrest Gump running out <laughs> yes. down the road. It's almost like he's running, he's backwards, running backwards now, uh, back to the beginning, where actually we shouldn't have done any of it. Well, I, I'm not sure you could say that. But, I mean, certainly the point about those travel restrictions is almost always they were brought in uh, too late to make much of a difference to uh, to the spread of the virus. Mm, absolutely right. So as far as this is concerned, I mean, you're an expert in, in, in these matters. They're, they're quoting a senior official familiar with the contents of the report. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that presumably is a civil servant of some Well, kind. they're using the word excoriating, so yeah. obviously a, a well-educated civil servant. Mm, yes. Well, it could be that, that that wasn't exactly what they said. I mean, I used to work <laughs> in newspapers as well. Um, but, I mean, it's clearly there are still clearly plenty of civil servants inside Downing Street uh, who, if this is not being leaked deliberately by Boris, are quite happy to try and keep throwing him under a bus until finally one of them runs him over. Well, unless it's someone trying to defend Boris by raising expectations of uh, Sue Gray's report, mm. uh, which will then be uh, disappointed when it's published. I mean, it won't be the first time that we've had uh, we've had a report which is supposed to be a you know, death to mm. a prime minister. Yes. I mean, if you think about the Hutton report... Uh, and all the rest of it, yeah. um, and then it comes out, and it's actually completely the opposite. And now, and, of course, because uh, everybody I ha- gets disappointed, I haven't seen you since, a whitewash. Since I haven't seen you since last Thursday, there's now going to be another report uh, following this this report uh, into whether or not he misled Parliament, no. which will go on for more weeks and months, no doubt. The Committee of Privileges, indeed, yes. which uh, has a uh, a four to two. Uh, conservative majority, so uh, I suspect that one's not too threatening to the prime minister, unless uh, unless. Well, I'm not sure any of it is really. I mean, again, we still return, don't we, to the to the what will happen in May kind of scenario, and if the if the uh, election results are really really awful for yes. Boris Johnson, and if the Labour Party does actually look like winning something, yes. Um, and if they do, I, well, does, does it depend well, more? See. Does it depend more on how well Labour do rather than how badly the Tories do? Uh, well, no, because uh, because what matters in politics is the difference between the two, isn't yeah. it? So if the gap is is sufficient, then yes. Uh, but what I'm saying, I problem. suppose, is if, um, if if Labour was to win control of many more councils than they currently have, yes, that would be worse for the Tories than if they didn't. And if they yes, didn't. oh, absolutely. And and Labour are fighting what looks to me like quite an effective. Uh, and aggressive campaign um, on on tax rises. Yeah. Uh, you know these 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 final demand tax notices uh, are, are featuring heavily in uh, in in Labour mm. campaign literature. Yes. Um, and, and, and I suspect and, that's going to be quite effective. And old Sir Keir's even started talking about illegal migrants. Well, he? It, well, he's uh, he's said that he's even suggested that we should have uh, offshore processing yeah. centres uh, near to the places where um, where some of these. Uh, so he's quite happy with offshore processing centres. He just doesn't want them in Rwanda. Well, that was uh, that was the gist of what he was saying yeah. at the weekend. Yes. Right. Although, uh, did you see that uh, over the last couple of days, zero crossings were made. Uh, and an interview with uh, some migrants, which was done and published in the Daily Mail, with them saying, we don't want to come. We don't want to end up in Rwanda. We'll, we'll, we'll say well, where we are. Well, there are, there are other reports I've seen. I mean, in the Times this morning, there's a, the, the, uh, Matt Dathan's gone to interview 
people in the tents around Calais. Yeah. Uh, and they say they're not going to be put off. They're, they're still coming. So it may, I, I, I think if, if there haven't yeah, but been there hasn't, crossings, that may have been the weather. According to gov.uk, yeah. it wasn't the weather, because I was down there yesterday and the day before, and the weather wasn't okay. that bad. I mean, they've come in, in, in worse weather, let's put it that way. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, gov.uk, which 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 every day every day brings the number of you know small boats that have crossed and the number of crossings that have been successful. Yeah, and for the two days there was zero. Well, if it is having a deterrent effect, then that is a uh, which will be uh, fascinating. That is interesting. Shall we talk about Angela Rayner? I mean, possibly <laughs> the <laughs> most ridiculous story that I think I've seen this year. Well, it's it's, uh, it's the illustration. I'm not sure what's more ridiculous: the story itself or the outrage about the story, because the story is clearly ridiculous. Um, well, it's. But it's clearly, uh, 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 it's, it feels to me like the sort of genuine thing a, a Tory MP might say. And certainly people have commented, sketch writers have commented on the fact that, you know, Boris Johnson seems to rather enjoy um, clashing with uh, with Angela Rayner mm. uh, and suggesting there might be a bit of a free song between them. Oh, right? really? I mean, uh, well, to, not that I've noticed well, in particular. Well, whenever she when she has stood in, they, they those have been quite lively. Well, exchanges. she's more because she's more entertaining yeah. than Keir Starmer. And, I mean, you know. But you get the sense that, that Boris rather respects her, um, which I think uh, was was quite interesting. I think those, I think people do clashes. respect her. I mean, I think whatever you may think of what, whatever it is that she says, I yeah. think she's a genuinely interesting individual, yeah. and I think quite a, quite a sort of um, a decent politician. Yeah, no, you know, it's an absurd whether she's a decent story. individual is another story. <laughs> but that's not what, as I've said before many times, I don't care what kind of individual. An MP is, as long as they get the job done. Yeah, you know, um, and and she is quite good at politics. I don't think there's, I don't think people would, do, would no, deny. No, I mean she's been very uh, successful. She's had a very successful career. She's definitely leader of the Labour Party. I mean, yeah. you don't get there, I and mean, it's a bit like you know, you don't get to the top of anything without being really reasonably good at it. But it's interesting what an outcry there has been. Yeah. I mean, rightly so, because I mean, it is, it is the most awful misogynistic. Uh, twaddle, but mm. it's interesting that there's been such a such an outcry against the Mail on Sunday for yes. publishing it. Right, um, which I was uh, quite surprised actually that the Mail on Sunday did something like that because well, it's kind of it's a bit of an own goal, isn't it? Well, it would it would seem to be because mm. I mean normally the Mail on Sunday's attitude. I mean I remember it being summed up by the great uh, Simon Walters. Uh, he, he operates on the Chatham House rules, which yeah. is we chat them up, and uh, if they say something stupid, we put it in the paper. Yeah. Uh, and that's they seem to have followed that rule on this uh, on this occasion. But yes. it, it has it has rebounded. But the on problem them. nowadays in the world in which we live, it's not just what you do; it's how you do it. Yeah. You know, because this will create acres of columns. I mean, I don't know if you're going to write about it, but many people will be writing about it probably for the rest of the week. You yeah. know, every columnist from sort of Sarah Vine to Rod Little will be probably putting something down about it. I've already read more than enough yeah, about it. Yeah, just exactly me. right. But what I'm saying is a bit like when the Guardian used to be all sort of high and mighty about royal family coverage and then they'd repeat all of it <laughs> yeah, in the garden right. and say it's absolutely disgraceful look what they said and here it is and, and here's, here's a picture yeah and they would yeah. do all the same things except they just do it a day later well, you know i haven't checked i haven't checked the independence website this morning mike so i won't say anything no exactly right but it is a very kind of um febrile atmosphere at the moment in politics as well as i mean we can't talk too much about these accusations of sexual impropriety but it's pretty amazing to have three cabinet ministers supposedly in the frame for that yeah um you know people at the weekend were, were sort of saying to me, have you heard who, who it is? You know, there's play guessing games going on, yeah. to which I said, we well, can probably rule people out easier than you can rule them in. Um, but I'm not going anywhere near that, obviously. But uh, well, but listen, we, we, we've, we've got one of the things that we're doing here at Talk TV is we've got very strict rules now on when we start and when we stop. Um, so there's going to be no more overrunning. There's going to be no more, you know, well, he's saying something really what, interesting. You mean I've got to shut up? You've got to stop talking for a bit. Yeah, I mean, but we'll let you back and talk some more in a minute because uh, we've got to still talk about Macron. We've got to talk about um, Labour's sort of change of, of leadership and style, if you like, as well as everything else. Plus, um, I want to talk to you um, about some other things as well which have come up 
over the course of the weekend. We can be talking to you. Uh, we'll be taking your calls as well. 0344 Apparently, if you've got a two-car space outside your house, that might be considered bad for the environment. So we'll be talking about that as well. And some cycling news too. This is Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Peter Hitchens is going to be coming up for us at 11 o'clock. He's got plenty to say about uh, Tony Blair's uh, little intervention last week where he said that more people should go to university. Um, you're uh, Mr. Blair's <laughs> I biographer. Should, I should stay around. Uh, you should. Have a, have um, chat to him. You, you must actually. Peter, probably... Peter Hitchens and I used to used to um, uh, chat over coffee in mm. the uh, in the mail building. Yes, uh, regularly before the uh, before the coronavirus. I've, I always found him most entertaining. Never a, never agreed with him on anything. No, but... I mean, but he's a remarkable man because I mean, we started off um, on here together at the beginning of the pandemic because basically we got into a bit of a spat on Twitter. Yes, um, that's right. And I was very much of the view that the first lockdown was necessary and he said he absolutely didn't just didn't agree but he said I don't suppose you'll ever let me onto your radio show to tell you. And I said well of course I will. Yeah. And I mean he's still and he hasn't been off since. And he since. hasn't been off since <laughs> and, and, and actually now I agree with much more of what he says. <laughs> Uh, I still think the first lockdown should have happened and would have happened in any event, but certainly everything after that. But he's completely um, wrong about Tony Blair and uh, and the university. Well, so, do you know, uh, I don't think he is because what he what he says about Tony Blair, as I'm sure you know, is that Tony Blair was the beginning of the end uh, of, well, of, of the traditional Britain that he grew up in, and I think he's to some yeah. extent correct about Tom that. Tony Blair is to blame for everything in uh, in Peter Hitchens' view. Well, he's uh, to, to blame for the beginning of what is now the woke sort of society in which oh, we live. He's to blame for nonsense. setting up the supreme Supreme Court um, is to blame for an awful lot. The of Supreme the... Court was just the House of Lords moved into a different. Well, building. no, it wasn't though, because it's not the House of Lords, is it? It's a completely different entity. No, it's so... not. It's the same entity well, moved it's not. into a different. No, building. it isn't. It's absolutely not that. The House, <laughs> the, the House of Lords had the master of the rolls. It had all the people who, uh, you know, who sit in judgment, perhaps in the, in, the, in the Supreme Court. But it's a very different uh, organisation. You'd have to say. We haven't got time for me to defend everything that Tony Blair ever did. Well, no, we'd need until about 2024 <laughs> for that. You know, there are still some people that think he's a war criminal. I'm I'm not one of them, by the way. Uh, I know. Um, and, you do uh, not use that term no. quite correctly. And I also call Tony Blair the great moderniser because I think he did drag Britain into a new era. And I don't think you can argue with that. But some of what he did um, in terms of modernising Britain was required and some of it wasn't. It's a bit like Thatcher. I mean, you can argue the same about Margaret Thatcher. Uh, you know, lots, no, of what she did, lots of what she did was fantastic for an awful lot of people. And some of what some she of did it was very bad so and very divisive. And, yeah. uh, and Tony Blair did a huge amount to repair the damage. But to pretend as well, though, the 1970s, I don't know how we got here, by the way. But sorry, <laughs> um, the, fact that, the fact that the 1970s was very divisive already. I mean, you know, I did my first shift at the newspaper uh, in 1983, I think it was. And at that time, the, the unions could still stop the paper from coming out. And the first yes. night I was going to have a piece in the paper, I was eagerly awaiting its arrival and I was to be told by the news editor, no, they're not printing it tonight. Yeah, but like, in what? the 1970s, there weren't four million people unemployed. So uh, uh, there, well, there, were, was there probably, were some good there, things there about probably, that time. There were probably and it, three produced million. Punk, it produced punk music as well. So Yeah, but that was because it was born out of misery. <laughs> I mean, I lived through the 70s. I'm not, I don't want to go back there, thanks. I mean, all these people who say, oh, it's going to be worse than the 70s. It isn't. There is no way. I mean, I'm, I was driving around at the weekend... Um, petrol prices are coming back down again, it would seem. Yes. I know you don't care about petrol because I you don't. drive around on a cycle, bicycle. Um, we're going to be talking about that later on. But, but you know, the world is a very different place now. From, from and a much, from much better place. I think uh, it is, yeah. I think it is. On the whole, a far better place than, than, than it ever was well before Tony Blair came in. I mean, even in the early 90s, you know, 
with John Major's government and the way life was, it was a very different country then. Yes, absolutely. And it's, mu- it's much better now. And it would be even better still if uh, if even more people went to university. Well, uh, see, I disagree they... with that because the problem with going to university is, one, it's now a business, isn't it? Because that's one of the things that Tony Blair did. He turned universities into um, well, £9,000 a year business, basically. He made them more efficient and more effective, absolutely. But and, let, and he I, vastly I think, increased no, the numbers think, of people yeah. going to university, which was a very important uh, well, development. Yeah, but yes and no, because an awful lot of people come out of university, £30,000 in debt, with a degree which is dubious, to say the least. No, well, it's not, it's not, it's not really a debt. It's, a, it's, it's just an obligation to pay higher taxes. Well, it's an uh, obligation it, it to pay the effect, money back. It is, you, in effect, a graduate tax. Uh, and that's uh, that's a sensible way of paying for the expansion. I don't see how else you would pay for the expansion. You could either say you can either say it shouldn't have expanded. Yes, uh, in, that was in what which I case, do say. Yes, well, in which case you're wrong. Uh, or you could say it should have expanded and uh, explain how else you pay for it. Well, uh, one, if it didn't expand in the way that it did, you'd have more people available to work, which at the moment we don't seem to have because we've got all sorts of graduates who think that they're qualified to do much more than just manual labour, when if they were doing the manual labour, we wouldn't have a shortage that we currently have, and, and work their way in and work their way up. People come out of, of university with with qualifications which are worthless, to be honest, and no, many of them I, can't speak or write in English. I mean, yeah. I see them here. I'm not I, going to name any names, but, you know, we've got people who come to us who have supposedly got a degree, yeah. who can't spell. Well, I don't accept I, I don't. Well, I'm telling I mean, you, it's I true. I don't accept that. I mean, I mean, no, of course. I mean, well, education education standards have never been high enough, and they ought to be higher. Yeah. And that's what Tony Blair is saying. And also, what universities don't anymore do, which they did when I went to them, uh, is they don't encourage people to have different points of view. They encourage you to have the same point of view, and to all sit in a room together nodding. And if somebody, you know, is a sort of miscreant, and in some way some kind of heretic, nobody talks to you. I'm not sure how true that is. But, I mean, I think... Well, they kicked think... people out as professors because they have certain views about issues which should be normally um, perfectly well held. Well, uh, They do, don't they? All, <coughs> all students should come on my course at King's, King's College London. Can I come on it? Where they, where they are free to express their, their views as long as they're pro-Tony Blair. Yeah, well, that's exactly right, you see. Um, he's only joking. Um, <laughs> but no, but there is, I think there is anyway. This is a, a conversation for another day. Let's talk about uh, Macron and yep. what that means, because there were a lot of people who thought that uh, Marine Le Pen had a chance this time. I didn't think, I wasn't one of them. Uh, but, well, she, she has got yeah. closer. There are still people saying, oh, well, next time she'll definitely win. Yeah, I'm not sure about but, that. She did, she did have a surge just before the uh, the first round. About two um, weeks before, and then it yeah. started to fall away, and then didn't it's, it? Yeah, that's right. And... Um, I mean, you can look at it two ways. Either she's a, she's an extremist um, right wing candidate who uh, who did extremely well, or she's a sort of a, a, a former extremist who's moderated a great deal and become mainstream and did very badly. Um, I'm not sure which mm. of those. two. I mean, if she was an extremist, I would say she's done very well. Yeah. But what she's tried to do is recenter herself, hasn't she? Because she didn't even much talk about Frexit this time around. No, that's right. Um, and and she, so, she, she changed the name of the Front National yeah. and she dropped some of the uh, some of the more extreme positions uh, and tried to shake off uh, anti-Semitism and, and, and racism. Yeah. Um, but didn't uh, didn't. Do I mean, enough, there's no question basically. that France is still a very divided country, I think. But I think well, Macron, even Macron was surprised. If you won. have an election between two rather different candidates, then mm. yes, that is divisive. I mean, we saw that in uh, we saw that in America. That's no, how, but democ- I'm not just that's how democracy that. works. No, democracy of course. Democracy is divisive. No, of course. But I mean, you said you used the word divisive first. So that's why. Well, I'm I used it in, in relation to Margaret Thatcher, because I thought she damaged the yes. social fabric of the well, country, which is a rather different, you might argue different 
form well, of division. Well, you might argue that COVID and all of the restrictions <coughs> that they had in France has also damaged the fabric of France because, you know, you saw the Gilets jaunes uh, demonstrations going on every weekend. Yeah. Police throwing tear gas, beating people up. But that's normal for France, isn't well, it? Well, I mean, well, that's, it kind of you know, is. In, in France, I mean, your, your idea of a good, a good weekend is to, is to burn a few cars in the, in, in the banlieue, isn't it? I mean, I think that's, that's, <laughs> that's, 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 how, France, that's how France works. Gross the generalisation. The significance of Macron's re-election for, for, for the UK is that it will test this, this idea, which I think is for the birds, uh, that somehow, you know, once he's re-elected, he, he, he and Boris Johnson will agree uh, for the French gendarmes to police a uh, 100-mile coast and mm. stop people getting into small boats. And well, I, I think, think the, see, I think the Rwanda manoeuvre has stopped that anyway. But well, we, no, we, the jury's out on that. Well, we, exactly. We, we, we can reconvene <laughs> at another time to discuss it further. Finally... Um, is Keir Starmer going to kick uh, Jeremy Corbyn out? I saw he got, he, he got another mention uh, saying uh, on Sunday that he, well, he's not a member of the Labour yeah. Party. Well, he kind of is. Well, he is a member of the Labour Party, but he's not a member of the parliamentary yes, Labour Party. I know, I mean, but that's what a, Starmer a, actually said. He's though. not a Labour MP. But that's what he said. Yes, well... Uh, but so he, he did say it. Yes, but, I mean, everybody knows that he's, you know, Jeremy Corbyn is not going to be a Labour candidate at the next election. Um, well, why does he I mean, just it is anomalous that he is a member of the Labour Party, but that's because that's because quite rightly Keir Starmer does not control the disciplinary processes uh, of, of, of well, the Labour Party. Well, maybe he should. Um, well, yeah, but then everybody complains about the, the leadership. Um, well, guess what? It, when you're the leader purposes. of something, people are always um, complaining. You better yeah. get used to it. You know, <laughs> know. you can't please everybody. I know. Any of the time, I don't mind think, all the time. I don't think Keir Starmer needs to do anything anything further. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn is is yesterday's story. I think Keir Starmer's much bigger problem is is shaking off the fact that he was he served in in Jeremy Corbyn's he shadow did. cabinet and he he struggled to answer and that he question can't yeah he can't get out again of and I've got to stop you there John perfect timing here we are this is the independent Republican Mike Graham John Renson thank you very much indeed after this we'll see you independent talk news talk talk radio the independent republic of Mike Graham with the self-appointed revolutionary of reason Mike Graham on talk radio Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Soon to be, of course, Talk TV as soon as 7pm tonight when we will go live uh, on your television screens on Sky, on Freeview, on Virgin Media and, of course, uh, on FreeSat as well. We'll still be available on YouTube and all the other places where you used to watch Talk Radio TV. Uh, it's going to be a thing of some beauty. Piers Morgan returns. He's got an interview with Donald Trump. Uh, he's talking about a great many things, including, of course, Harry and Meghan. Front page of The Sun today uh, saying that they should be basically stripped of their royal uh, patronage and their royal um, names as well. The Duke and Duchess of Sussex should disappear. Well, I called for uh, Prince Harry to have his British citizenship revoked at one point. Uh, caused quite a bit of uproar. But, I mean, if he doesn't want to be here, uh, why would he worry? 0344 499 1000. Coming up in this hour, Peter Hitchens joins us. Uh, we'll get his view on everything from the victory of Emmanuel Macron uh, to the war in Ukraine to the oversubsidy uh, of people going to universities in this country and why Tony Blair got it wrong to send more and more people to higher education. He's got a thing to say or two about Julian Assange and the extradition uh, that he is supposedly awaiting as well to the United States of America. Plus, after that last call, 
Let's talk a little bit about shortages, about hoarding, about what on earth people are doing out there. Uh, our last caller said uh, that he's got 100 toilet rolls, but he's only got one bottle of vegetable oil because, of course, a lot of places are seeing a run on vegetable oil. I wish people would stop doing it. I've seen petrol prices going down over the course of the weekend. Oil prices for heating have also gone down. There shouldn't have to be this kind of mad dash for hoarding everything, should there? 0344 499 1000 is the number. Uh, we've got much more to do. We're going to be talking as well about how having a two-car driveway could make you an enemy of the planet, for heaven's sake. 0344 499 1000. You listen to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet, soon to be Talk TV. This is Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Let us say a very good morning, because uh, it is Monday, to Mr Peter Hitchens. Peter, how are you? Morning. Very good to see you. Hopefully we'll see you in person soon once we've got the uh, uh, the wherewithal uh, to put you on the television. We've got a very nice chair waiting for you here, which I'm sure you could uh, use with some uh, alacrity. Um, interesting column at the weekend. I thought about, uh, we've been talking about this actually for a week or so uh, on this show, because I was of the opinion that Blair wasn't right in the first place when he wanted more people to go to university. And now he's even less right, saying that he thinks 70 percent of people should go to university. It's extraordinary. Uh, in a way, it was raising the school leaving age to 21 uh, and making people pay uh, for, for the, basically for what was the, the dole they would otherwise have been receiving. Because what a lot of these things are designed to do is, is conceal the large amount of youth unemployment, which we've had in this country for some time. Yeah. And but rather than actually saying, OK, you're unemployed and paying and paying them some kind of benefit for it, they were compelled uh, to borrow huge sums of money on interest rates which were initially attractive, which of course are growing and growing all the time and are becoming uh, something very much like a graduate tax which follows people throughout their lives and is, as, as all early promises and baited traps are, it gets worse as it goes on. But the other problem, of course, is does it do any good? Uh, you, you, all kinds of figures were brought forward saying if you got a degree, you'd, you'd have a better life and be paid more. But in fact, this, this only really applied to some degrees. It doesn't apply to the bog standard social science degrees and things and arts degrees of that kind, which uh, which these many of these new universities turn out. By the way, I should point out this wasn't entirely Blair. Uh, the John Major government uh, began the process, but didn't have the nerve to take it anything like as far as Blair did. Uh, it's also it's part of a, a curious process of Americanizing this country, which has been going on for really since the. Uh, since the state grammar schools were abolished and we had to have a, a good uh, state-run secondary education system, uh, we adopted the American system where the high schools are basically for socialization and education begins at college mm. where you then, of course, also have to begin to part with huge sums of money to pay for it. And many Americans cripple themselves to save for their children's college education, whereas here it was done by loans. But it's, it's a complete transformation of the way in which we approach education and the upbringing of children and the employment market. And it's also created this sort of Ponzi scheme economy in which many towns which have now got universities uh, rely on this, this, this loan-based loan arrangement whereby large institutions pop up in the middle of them, uh, which make a lot of money out of fees and out of increasingly out of property rental as well. And, and keep the economy going, which otherwise possibly wouldn't be going because we don't have much in the way of manufacturing and steel real activity in our society. It's very, very odd. I can't see it lasting. I must say, I think it, it, it's quite badly threatened by the current economic decline we're going through. 
and I, it was just so. I said, "What do we? What do we? How do we? How do we explain the way in which we raise people's expectations?" So you you spend three years at something called a university. It will give you something called a degree, and at the end of it, uh, you're ultimately only able to get a job flipping mm. burgers. Well, what's what was the point of that? And you're also in very heavy debt. Yes. And also the whole point, Peter, is that the people who go to university are going there expecting to get an education, but they're not really getting what you and I would regard as a proper education because all they're getting really um, is a load of sort of facts thrown at them, some of which may or may not be dubious, some of which may or may not be ideological, uh, and some of which may or may not be of any use to man or beast. And at the end of the day, surely the point would be that... We want people to come out of university either better informed or with more capacity to think or with more capacity to imagine and to create, um, or they might as well not be going at all. Well, quite. And in fact, it does them harm because it keeps them out of the, out of the labour market for crucial years when they could be actually doing serious jobs and learning serious trades and skills and entering the, the world of work and, and becoming uh, becoming useful to themselves and to society, whereas, in fact, they're being trained in something which has very little practical use. As I said, is there anybody who's ever uh, wanted to call an arts graduate in an emergency at a weekend? Mm. You, you, you'll certainly want to call a plumber from time to time. And a, a lot of people would be much better off being trained in, in useful things to do, which they could do, which would guarantee them income for the rest of their lives and be helpful to society. Than being than being put into these courses which don't have any any practical worth and actually also don't have a particularly high academic worth. I'm all in favour of universities. They're great places to encourage people to learn how to think. Uh, something we we have a great shortage of people mm. who think in our society now. Yes. Uh, but they they're not necessarily vocational. But they they need actually to be small and good. And that was the arrangement we had really until the middle sixties. Uh, when they began to expand them in, with increasing speed and they ceased to be what they had been and became instead not very useful vocational schools for many people, giving them qualifications which weren't much use to them. Yeah. It's been a mistake. The, the difficulty is, as with all these things, recognising it's been a mistake and putting it right. And I would, if people, if, if we could find people who were really equipped for university education, we should pay them full grants, pay all their fees, make sure they can get through it without that piling up huge debts and then we'd have people in our society who were really useful in, in, in all in all areas of higher education and the, the rest of the, the people could be trained in things they need to know to, so that they could actually be uh, useful to themselves raise families uh, pay their uh, pay their their rents and their food bills and and actually create in this society the sort of productive economy which for instance germany yeah. has and we don't really no, absolutely, because there are many people who make a great deal more money if it's money that they're looking for, working um, as plumbers or working as plasterers or as painters and decorators or even gardeners uh, than many of these graduates coming out with sort of media studies degrees or, you know, some kind of nebulous, you know, film studies degree or something like that, whereas you say they end up flipping burgers with uh, for, for, the, for the point of it. But the other thing, I think, as well, uh, is that people are not any longer, you know, coming out with, as I say, um, the ability necessarily to think. They're coming out um, with a sort of half-baked idea of what they're educated in. They, they, they're, they're, there's an awful lot of gaps in their knowledge, for one thing. And one of the other sort of side effects of it has been, I was told this by a friend of mine who did a bit of lecturing uh, down in a university on the South Coast for journalism, um, that because they're now paying, an awful lot of the students feel rather entitled. If you tell them they're not doing very well, they say, well, that's your fault. You're teaching me. You should be teaching me better. 
Oh, that's right, because this leads to the most acute, appalling grade inflation, where people are being awarded increasingly first-class degrees for uh, for work which 30 years ago wouldn't have produced anything like that. So the the degrees mean less and less. And there's always a, a time lag uh, between employers realizing this and it happening. But that, I think an awful lot of employers are now grasping that having a, a, a first-class degree doesn't necessarily mean very much anymore. No. And that, that damages the people who, who genuinely got high-quality degrees and who are classified as with A-stars in, in, or whatever they are now in GCSEs and A-stars in A-level, classifies them as being on the same level as people who aren't. Mm. Because always these grade inflation squeezes the grades at the top. And in fact, disadvantages the the real high achievers who you can't uh, you can't pick out anymore. It's it, it's bad for so many points of view. Also, the universities themselves have increasingly become quite rapacious businesses, uh, whose whose main task is is to bring in the money from the fees and also from the the property. And very large numbers of rental properties are being built all over the place of not very high quality, in which students are, are garaged during the during their time yeah. at university, paying colossal rents. I'm often shocked. You, know, you go to a place like Liverpool and you, and you ask people what they're paying uh, for their for their rents. And I wouldn't say Liverpool was, was a particularly high high rental, high property price area, but they're paying very high rents for not very good property. Mm. And it, just, it all has the look to me uh, of, a, of, a, say, of a, a rapacious business rather than actual education. Oh, I think that's absolutely right. And Tony Blair turned it into a business. And, and there's an awful lot of universities which now run as businesses. And if they don't get enough students coming from this country, then they just recruit them from overseas. Um, and then... You say an awful lot. I, I think it's pretty much all of them now, isn't it? Probably, yeah, absolutely right. And the other problem, I think, for, for me, with all of this um, you know, money that's going through the system, um, is that it isn't sort of... Um, helping society to move on it's it's really rather hindering it it's kind of you know it's manacling it in a way because it's making them all come out thinking the same thing because the way that they are now taught is very much um, not about dissent it's about agreement well yeah so this is also the problem with the comprehensive schools it's impossible to find this out i mean they're not, they're not called that anymore that's what they almost all are it's yeah. impossible to find this out because they're not it's very difficult to get uh, to get access uh, to these places, uncontrolled access, where you can find out what's going on. Uh, but I get a lot of communications from re- readers of mine about how, how they they believe that their children are being indoctrinated in school, and how the, the, those who try and express, or whose or whose parents are known to have expressed uh, the wrong views by, for instance, uh, reading the Daily Mail and the Mail on Sunday, uh, such people are actually uh, are actually made to feel bad about it yeah and the the by the time they get to university they've already been substantially indoctrinated in these ideas and i think it would be quite difficult for anyone with socially morally or politically conservative opinions to teach at a university unless he or she kept his mouth shut because i think there's a there is an almost total acceptance now that there are certain views which are okay and certain views which are not no i think i think i think that's absolutely the case peter we're going to ask you to hold there for a second we'll come back to you we want to talk about julian assange a great many other things as well peter hitchens mail on sunday columnist with us right here at talk radio talk radio a new lineup for a new generation essential edgy engaging advanced postulation for any angry nation ask for it by name talk radio the home of common sense
Welcome back to the home of Common Sense and, of course, Straight Talking. It is a talk radio, soon-to-be talk TV, coming up uh, later on tonight, 7 o'clock. Don't forget to join us for the big switch-on. Uh, that will be happening with Tom Newton-Dunn uh, and the news desk. We're talking to Peter Hitchens right now, uh, talking about all manner of things, the price uh, of everything and the value of nothing, perhaps. We'll be talking about that uh, with regards to university education. Let's talk a little bit about Julian Assange um, as well, Peter. You've been a, a supporter of his uh, over the times that he's been uh, in and out of various different prisons in this country. Um, you've also made it very clear that you don't particularly like the guy, but you do think that he's in uh, in need of, of, uh, of support and, and indeed freedom. Yeah, I don't like him at all. In fact, the, the one occasion when we, when we sort of met was in a debate about uh, drug legalisation in which we were very ferociously on opposite sides. Yeah. And I, that, that's that's something about which I'm, I'm quite... Um, we're, we're deeply committed in, in opposite directions, mm. but I believe very profoundly uh, that this sort of thing should not stand in the way of defending freedom. The fact that I disagree with somebody doesn't mean that I, I, I would agree with other people trying to silence him or to drag him away to a prison for something which is, uh, it doesn't seem to me even to be a crime. And the, the, his offence uh, is plainly a political one. He embarrassed the United States government uh, very badly. And there are, there's lots of work, all kinds of people claim that he endangered intelligence sources and things like that. But I think that that, that, uh, that has been thoroughly rebutted by his supporters. I also think it's a disgrace to this country that he's been kept in the very, very harsh conditions of Belmarsh maximum security prison. Uh, he did indeed jump bail, which he was wrong to do, uh, but he's actually served his contempt of court uh, sentence for that some long time ago. Mm. Yet he's still being held in a maximum security prison. I really don't see, he's got no record of breaking out of prison. I really don't see why he couldn't be kept somewhere where, where, where his conditions could be uh, could, could be more humane and uh, also where his family might find it easier and more pleasant to visit him. It seems to me to be uh, quite inexplicable that this goes on and on. And now the courts have, have finally accepted various assurances made by the Americans that they'll treat him nicely when they get him, uh, which I don't know how much they're worth, but uh, and they have agreed to extradite him. Mm. But uh, the Home Secretary still has the power to refuse. And I think that, uh, that, that she very much should refuse to. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. This is uh, Theresa May. When she was home, she actually refused the extradition of Gary McKinnon, who you probably remember. The yes. Case I, I think that people who want this to happen should write to her, I'd say briefly and, and, and politely, uh, saying, would you please not do this? And the grounds on which they should do it is, is first of all, say it's, it's, it's a political offence, which really should never be uh, allowed to be extradited. 
uh, people should never be allowed to be taken out of this country for political reasons by other, other powers. It's an assault on British sovereignty uh, that, that another power is basically coming up to somebody for, for, for something which uh, is not a crime here. Uh, and can you imagine for a moment uh, if, if somebody in the United States had, 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 had discovered a trove of, of British, um, of British confidential diplomatic uh, documents? Can you imagine the United States uh, allowing us to extradite such a person back here? Uh, they wouldn't, because the, the, whatever the experts say, it's perfectly obvious that the, the extradition treaty between this country and the United States is unequal, mm. and they wouldn't do it. And it, so we're basically being being asked to assent to the, the, the kidnap of someone by a, a more powerful foreign state uh, because they don't like it. And all kinds of things have been said by very senior officials in the Trump administration, for instance, about Julian Assange, which in this country would be regarded as totally prejudicial and would, would make a trial. Uh, impossible. Uh, it's it's just the whole thing is just it, it's just intolerable. And I'm mm. quite shocked that more British uh, journalists and indeed more British political figures are not more worried about it because if it, if it allows if, if it becomes a precedent, then frankly it, it's it's hard to see whether anybody would be safe. In this well, this is the thing. Situation. I mean, it does does make you wonder because when somebody like yourself, Peter, says that you you're effectively saying he doesn't get a fair trial in America if he gets sent back there. Um, which is well, what, I can't which is say that because I mean, because we haven't seen the trial. Well, I'm saying this that it really, if he were an American citizen, for instance, I, I think he would be protected by the First Amendment, uh, which protects journalism and and, and, uh, and the freedom of the press in such a way that I don't think he, he could be prosecuted. Mm. Certainly, because he's not an American citizen, he would be prosecuted at all. Yes. Well, it is interesting. I mean, you've spent time in America, as I have, and uh, you do realise at certain points in certain situations, if you're not a US citizen, you don't really have that many rights in America. No, you don't. You know? uh, but it's also the, the, the nature of the American justice system, which in, in, on paper is, is similar to ours. There's, there's a presumption of innocence, there's jury trial. Uh, but there's been an almost total uh, embrace of plea bargaining. And people think, oh, well, that's great. It saves the cost of trial. It means people who are, who are guilty can make a deal with prosecutors and go to prison for a reasonable time. And, and there's no necessity to drag people through court. The problem with this is that it can also be used in basically put pressure on people mm. to plead guilty. You're told, okay, you can you, you can plead not guilty and go for a jury, but in that case, you're quite likely to get a sentence of something like 140 years or whatever it is. Whereas if you if you do a bargain with us, you'll be out in 10. I don't think that's I, I don't think that's a true presumption of innocence or a, a, or, or, or or proper fair trial according to the mm. ancient English legal principles, which is supposed to apply in both our countries. And I just think it's 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 just it gets rid of, mm. effectively, uh, the genuine right uh, to a, a jury trial in which you're presumed innocent until proven guilty. I just, I, it makes me very, very worried. And also, how will he be treated mm. when he gets there? Yes. And the, the and American where, where will he be very held? harsh. And where will he be held? Because you're quite right to talk about where he's held here, because you can be sure if you were to do a little search around at some of the sort of so-called open prisons, uh, they're probably full of an awful lot worse criminals than Julian Assange. We know, for example, that Colin Pitchfork, the double murderer, the double child murderer, uh, was in an open prison for some months before he was eventually released yeah. on parole. So I'm sure that I, there's a lot of... It very... is extraordinary that the, the way in which he's been, in, in which he's, in which he's been incarcerated here, it, just, it doesn't make any... I, I've occasionally raised it because it just seems to me to be so absurd and no one, no one else seems to say, well, hang on there, I, I don't like this guy either. But if if we permit this sort of treatment of someone because he's fallen into the hands of the, of the custody system, 
without any kind of a protest, and if it just goes on and on, what, what sort of country are we mm. when nobody's bothered uh, by what is what seems to me to be pretty naked injustice? Yeah. If we're not bothered by that, what are you bothered by exactly? Exactly right. And it does also show, presumably, that he can be held um, in a way which is different from other, the way other people would be held, presumably at the behest of the Home Office. Well, I, it's, it's the Ministry of Justice, I think, which takes these decisions, but I, I, which is, it, it, of course, now hived off from the, from the MSO. I always thought when, when we started having a Minister of Culture and a Minister of Justice that we were going downhill, because countries which, which have those things tend to have neither culture nor justice. Uh, but and this is another illustration of it. But I, the thing is, there must be some ministerial and, and official responsibility for deciding uh, where people are are actually held when they're in prison. Uh, and at the moment he's being held pending extradition. There is he, he's not subject to to, uh, to any kind of actual custodial sentence from the court. Mm. And all right, as I say, he did jump bail, uh, and he did he did hide the Ecuadorian embassy. And uh, okay, we we all have to accept that this was a, this was the wrong thing to do for many many reasons. But that's not a reason for maximum security. No, uh, it's a very different thing to jump bail than to, than to actually break out of the prison. And I just, just the the, the problem with with Belmarsh, I say, is that if, if he wants to receive visits or indeed make make researches or things like that, it's much much harder in such a prison than it is in a in a lower category of security. Yes, it, indeed it is. Uh, Peter, we're out of time, sadly, so I'm going to leave it there. Thank you very much indeed. Peter Hitchens from the Mail on Sunday there talking uh, about those dead-end degrees. Uh, have you sent your child, your teenager, off to university? I think what you will find, if you're a parent, uh, is that there's an awful lot of work not being done. Lots of uh, university lecturers have been on strike for the best part of most of this year, believe it or not. Many of them are off for the whole month of February. Some of them, I think, are still on strike. Many of them are not actually back in their offices as well. They're certainly not uh, in any way, shape or form occupying lecture theatres and an awful lot of stuff is still going on online. And if you were paying nine grand for that every single um, time you sent somebody off to university for per year, I think you'd be pretty cheesed off, wouldn't you? 0344-499-1000 is the number. Lots more to do. We're going to take more of your calls. We're also going to take uh, a word from uh, our good friend, uh, Mr Howard Cox from the Fair Fuel UK organisation because there's been uh, punishment handed out to a, a driver, a motorist, for supposedly passing cyclists too close by. It was captured on video and he's been given a punishment that might lead to a ban in driving. And the reasons are very, very shaky indeed. This is Talk Radio. Belinda, very, very good afternoon to you. Well, good afternoon, Mike. Lovely to see you. Lovely to see you too. Now, I'm sorry you're not here when we're about to be brilliantly uh, trans- transformed into, you know, the best TV station of all time, the best thing anybody has ever seen. But I can see you right now, even though other people can't, and we apologise for that. Actually, just before we talk about Angela Rayner, you've got daughters who are presumably getting themselves ready to think about going to college. Um, what do you tell them when they ask you? Because we, we were talking about this earlier. Tony Blair reckons that it would be great if 70 to 75% of, of teenagers actually went to university. I'm not sure I agree with him. No, I don't agree with that at all. I think it's terrible. I hear more and more stories from from parents, from friends of mine who have 
you know, early 20s kids who are so unmotivated they can't get off the sofa mm. after doing a degree that doesn't land them a job afterwards. And I've said to my four girls, look, I'm very happy to support you to do a degree in a profession, um, you know, when where a job is almost guaranteed at the end of it. But otherwise, you know, go and study plumbing or yeah. be an electrician, start your own plumbing company up because you are far more certain of a job that way. You're, you're far less likely to be indoctrinated with all this identity politics and self-hatred that's being you know perpetuated by mm. all these uh, left-wing academics in our universities they're not they're not free thinking free spaces anymore they are very very um censorous uh, uh, and they have bubbles of people who are absolutely um you know, a, a open season on them. So you can have open season on Catholics, on Jews, on white men, on 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 women who don't agree with the trans ideology. Um, but then other groups are protected. And I think it's a very dangerous uh, way to teach children how to deal with people with different ideas. So university to me does scare me a little bit. I haven't been promoting it as much as I thought I would. Now my daughter's, my eldest is turning 18. Yes. Um, and we are looking at, I think it was the Free Speech Union that compiled a list of universities mm. that are the least woke. <laughs> and I am looking at that uh, when I consider university options with my daughter um, for her future. It does make a totally. difference. Totally. Oh, I think you have to, because when you look at what happened to you know Kathleen Stock and, and you look at what happened at Sussex, University of Sussex, which was always a bit of a hotbed of rampant lefties, even when I was going around university, they were always <laughs> at the front of the marches, you know, with the old, uh, you know, peace signs up. But basically, if you've got a, a, an institution that, that allows a woman to be hounded out uh, of a job on the basis of something that she believes to be true, which in fact is a perfectly reasonable belief, you know, you can't be sending your kids there. You wouldn't want to give them any money, would you? No, I, I agree completely. My daughter's doing A-level politics and in one of her first classes, she was handed out a leaflet of how J.K. Rowling was a turf. Um, and demonising women who dared disagree with men redefining you know, women so they can access their spaces. And she said it's impossible to put your hand up in class anymore if you disagree with the teacher and their sort of woke ideology. Yeah. You're, you're worried about getting worse marks. You you will be seen as an evil person, a bad person, as opposed to someone who just has a different point of view. And so we are kind of having this generation being brought up to really hate and dislike someone who has a very moderate and centrist view of the world. Absolutely right. Which brings us to a very odd place indeed, really, because the reason we wanted to talk to you was about the role of women in politics. And I'm sure that you've seen your fair share of sexism and misogyny when you were in Brussels with the Brexit party because you were hated for all sorts of reasons, not just for being a woman, you know. Um, but, you know, Angela Rayner, uh, you might say she's a Marmite figure. I'm not even sure if that's true. Um, I, I don't have a massive problem with the way Angela Rayner sort of purports herself. I think she's quite an entertaining character and we need those in politics. But, I mean, that story in the Mail on Sunday, accusing her of sort of trying to distract Boris uh, by crossing and uncrossing her legs, Sharon Stone style. I mean, I found it really weird. I found it really creepy because yeah. it wasn't just about crossing and uncrossing legs. Comparing it to Basic Instinct, and I don't know if your if your listeners have, have have seen the film, is literally saying she's flashing her lady garden at the opposition benches um, <laughs> to make up for her lack. Now, of there's breath. a word I never thought I'd hear on the radio station <laughs> that I uh, currently sit on. <laughs> 
Well, it's true. That's what the the MP was saying yeah. that she was crashing a lady garden. Um, and and I think it is is very Taliban esque actually for for uh, this MP to say basically this woman who flashed a bit of flesh has has driven men wild like animals so they can't concentration on the job at hand. Yeah, that's very sexist towards men as well, making them out to be these hapless creatures who have no control when a lady yeah. flashes her ankle or a heave of a breast. Right. Oh, I know. Um, well, I mean, if anything, it's obviously having a major effect more on Keir Starmer than it is on Boris Johnson, who seems to be doing his job reasonably well at the dispatch box, whereas Keir is boring everybody to death. Yes, yeah, and I, but it's it's the it's a bit rich coming from the Labour Party to even talk about women at the moment because they're they're faux feminists, they're conditional feminists. They pick and choose the women they support and defend to, based on their politics. So they'll throw Rosie Duffield under the bus, they'll throw J.K. Rowling, they'll throw women under the bus who who believe that men shouldn't have access to to their loos and changing rooms, and yet they'll beat their chests about you know safety for women and respect for women while while wanting to eliminate their boundaries. Yeah. You know, David Lammy and was was called, called women dinosaurs for for wanting to have the right to reject men from our changing rooms. You know, Labour Party has a massive issue with with women, and so when they stand on their platform, ticking their you know fingers off at the Tory Party, um, you know, I, I it, it's a hard pill for me to swallow because I think they're pushing one of the most misogynistic policies, uh, you know, in the Western world uh, since I was born, um, yeah. and, and and I'm always going to call them out for that. Absolutely right, and I mean, is it right? I mean, I have the impression impression um, that Brussels uh, and the chamber there, the, the European Union chamber, was a bit of a sort of carry-on style place. You know, I have this vision of, of, you know, the French and the Belgians and the Germans and the Italians who, let's face it, have got some very interesting television programmes on their on their main networks, you know, which I was unfortunate enough to see when I was quite young. Uh, when we used to travel around Europe, you'd check into some hotel, you'd look up and you'd be going, blimey, you know, you could do that on television. Um <laughs> But, you know, I always get I always have the impression that, you know, you would have been the victim, I would imagine, um, of quite a lot of attention, unwanted attention. Well, look, I think, you know, uh, grown women can deal with unwanted attention from silly men when they come out with sexist comments. You know, I'm, I'm certainly not going to teach my daughters to faint and swoon and, and become childlike any time a man says, you look beautiful today. Um, so that kind of stuff, I, I, you know, didn't bother me at all. Um, and I think there's a difference between men being charming in the workplace and the, the, the horrible comments this MP made about Angela Rayner. So I, I'm able to deal with that quite well. It was It was more the sort of messages that I got from the keyboard warriors um, that I didn't come face to face with, you know, like, cool, you look like you want your Brexit good and hard, Belinda, here's my number, and all this sort of stuff. Unbelievable. <laughs> I, I know. But also, on the other end of the spectrum, you know, horrific things about how I was, you know, all based on my looks and, and out of 10 and things like that. Um, but because it wasn't in my workplace, I didn't feel threatened by it at all. I got a lot of horrible stuff from women, actually, really? about, you know, I'm not fit to be a mother and I have, should have my children taken away from me. Um, you know, well, this kind of, because of your political views? Uh, because of my political views. And, and also they felt like because I was a woman, I'd betrayed the soft and fair politics of the lib left. And, you know, they couldn't be believe that betrayal. So, yeah, the times I was called the C word was, was by women. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, the European Parliament was a hotbed of sexual tension a lot of the time <laughs> because men and women were away from home. Mm. Um, away from their families and there was a lot of alcohol a lot of long lunches a lot of flirting in the MEP bar because there wasn't a lot 
of work to do because you're basically paid to prop up a sort of, you know, fake looking de yeah. democracy and fake parliament. Um, and there's not a lot to do. So there's a lot of drinking, flirting and I'm sure a lot of affairs. Yes. Well, I think Westminster's not that different, is it? Because an awful lot of people in second homes, you know, you've got characters who are maybe um, have got a wife and kids back up north somewhere or down in the West Country. They swan around uh, in town on expenses uh, for an awful lot of the time. Quite a lot of drinking goes on in the late night bars uh, inside the House of Commons. I'm not sure what they've done about that. I think they've shut some of them. But, you know, it's a very febrile atmosphere and power creates this kind of thing as well, doesn't it? Yeah, and, and women also, you know, we are attracted to, to power. Men are attracted to, you know, youth and beauty and all these kind of... Yes, it's old-fashioned to say that, but I still think that remains. And I do think women have a much harder time in the public eye because of this constant, you know, is she fit, is she shaggable? Uh, you know, and it is in the papers. Women, the way women are treated with and how we look and our legs and our bodies, it's not the same way male politicians get treated at all. I remember reading an article, you know, a few years ago in The Spectator about, you know, it, would you do Harriet Harman? You know, oh yes, only if you were drunk. If you were sober, maybe not. And all the, you just wouldn't see the same. I think the worst no. women have ever done to men is dishy rishy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? and that's all gone out the window now. Although I was called um, uh, on live on Virgin Radio this morning by Chris Evans, no less, uh, as the thinking woman's Piers Morgan. Oh, so I'm well, quite happy about that. I like that. Yeah, there's, there's no harm in being charming or flirty. And also, I think we need to separate sexism with misogyny. Yes. Calling everything misogynistic is is awful and dilutes that, you know, the reality of a lot of victims of misogyny. I think a lot of men who love women get it wrong sometimes and can make sexist remarks sometimes. And they just need, uh, you know, called out on it. It doesn't make them bad, you know, women hating fiends that need to be imprisoned. But, you know, if you're a guy and you can't control yourself when a woman flies flashes a leg you should really kind of you know stay at home yeah exactly stay home yeah work from home in fact don't ever come out uh, just stay where you are belinda brilliant thank you very much indeed belinda de lucy there reporting into us on the world of uh, the war of the sexes in the world of politics because it is it's all about power uh, it's all about attraction it's all about entertaining it's all about drinking it's all about all the things that get people into trouble and that's a problem isn't it this is Talk Radio. Not a panic station. Translate and decode the issues of the moment. Talk Radio. Now available on TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham. Ian Collins here, of course, from one o'clock. We'll hear from him in a little while about what's going on on his show. There's a lot of stories around today. We've covered an awful lot of ground uh, here on Talk Radio. Head of the uh, Talk TV launch at 7pm tonight. Uh, let's now talk about inclusive language shall we because we use an awful lot of words on this show uh, as we do on every show uh, here at talk radio soon to be talk tv because we talk for a living somebody once said to me you know that concrete clip was that because you couldn't think of anything to say and you go can you imagine me not being able to think of anything to say no it wasn't about that it was about silence and sometimes silence is more powerful than speech not very often you have to know when to do it but if you're on google you might find that you're getting messages from a bot inside the machine telling you that maybe your language isn't quite what it ought to be. Maybe you ought to re-educate yourself. Let's talk to Ella Whelan from Spikes Online. Ella, very good afternoon to you. Hi, hi, Mike. Now, um, I don't wish to suggest that um, we might use conceited and patronising words, but, I mean, this is a bit ridiculous, isn't it? We're, we're now being told, if you're writing an email, if you're writing something on a Google Doc, you might be told off by the computer. Which is, it's not just ridiculous, I think it's actually, pre it's pretty dark stuff, particularly if you are a journalist mm. or someone who's um, 
livelihood and political engagement is involved in picking your words very carefully. Uh, this is a real example of overreach when it comes to uh, you know, big tech censorship, but also the suggestion that your everyday person needs the oversight of what someone in California, of Silicon Valley, wherever it is, mm. deciding that it's more appropriate for you to use the term stay at home partner rather than housewife right. or police officer rather than policeman, whatever it is. Um, and it also negates the fact that there are, you know, we are currently in the midst of, as everyone listening and watching will know, a, a pretty heated debate over gender. And so, and what kind of language we use in relation to gender. And there are particular instances in which certain people make very serious choices. Um, I'm just thinking of a recent uh, Brendan O'Neill article in Spiked um, about a uh, trans individual, Grace Lavery, who's got a particularly, um, shall we say, unpleasant book out um, at the moment. Mm. And Brendan makes the point that he is refusing to use the preferred pronouns for this person because of the content of the book. So he's making a political decision there yeah. about what kind of words he uses what kind of gender <laughs> gendered use of the words he uses and um, under this kind of google um preaching that wouldn't be allowed or he'd be ticked off for doing that and that is a political overreach and an overstep that just cannot be allowed no and i mean we've been talking on the show today about further education higher education universities and children um wanting to go in bigger numbers and uh, you know, likes of Tony Blair telling people they should go in greater numbers, and these are the kind of places now which are teaching this kind of what I would call lexicography fascism. You know, like you can only speak in a certain way, you can only use certain words. You know, we'll tell you what you can write. I mean, it's the most stifling form of censorship I think I can think of. Well, it's one of those things that it's it's a real shame that the idea of how we educate people and how we inculcate social norms and values into a new generation has turned into this very superficial sense of you have to use this word and not mm. this word because you know particularly in relation to university education the main thing that is supposed to happen there and you know, i happen to think that everyone who wants to go to university should go to university but the, sh the problem at the moment is university is seen as not a site where you go and have intellectual exploration and you know read books like i did for three years and opens your mind but it's just this kind of factory towards trying to get a, a job and that's why it's failing people but the main the main purpose of um teaching people of educating people of telling people what you think is right is that you open their minds and what's happening with, you know, this Google example, but also elsewhere, whether it's sort of um, government policy, whether it's a corporate policy of bringing in, you know, you have to use this language, you can't use this, these words in our safe space and blah, 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 all this stuff. It's not saying let's come together and decide what kind of a world <laughs> society we want to live in. And, you know, here's here's the views of a former generation and take them on it's it's really stifling the idea that anybody should use their minds to think for themselves and it's a really dangerous thing to be teaching young people because it ends up treating we know that this this whole kind of uh you know obsession with the idea that words cause harm in the same way that a, a punch in the gob would and you know as a journalist you know you and i will know that uh words can be particularly effective and sometimes um particularly piercing and that's you know they're powerful that's why we trade in words that's how we communicate but there is this real sense of 
um, sort of an infantilizing approach to vocabulary to suggest that it would be so dangerous that you'd have to ban it to use gendered language like postman or um, indeed more serious things like using the word mother in relation to maternity. Mm. And I think that's that's giving a very ignorant, stupid and uh, denigrated understanding of, of how we communicate and what words mean to a young yeah. generation. Exactly right, because all of these changes to the to the language that we're supposed to use have made language less accurate for me. You know, language has evolved over centuries and, you know, we've made words uh, that didn't exist, you know, I don't know, 100 years ago. Um, and it's a constantly evolving thing. But what it's never done before is evolved kind of to a point where words can't be used. I don't think there's ever been a time in the history of this country or the world where you, there were words that you couldn't say. Well, that, I mean, the thing, the, the important word there that you're using is evolved because, you know, you're right that the, a language is, because it's our means of communication, changes as the social, political world around us changes. Mm. So, you know, if you, you know, to, to take the most obvious example that everyone knows, um, you know, the N word in years and, and decades gone by would have been in, within common usage. We now understand that because of its um it's loaded racist term we don't use it and that's something that's happened naturally but we don't use it but there are plenty of people who do use it though yeah different and that's the thing in different situations it's used sometimes it's used by people in songs and sometimes but but in other contexts it's not appropriate language is flexible what's happening at the moment is rather than a flexible approach to language which you know reflects real life changes in society um, instead, we have a very small section of people, you're right, often academics, the people from gender studies departments or whatever it is, um, writing into law or into policy and regulation, this very unorg- inorganic, whatever the word is, um, uh, sort of artificial means of saying we have now decided without any public consultation, that's the important thing, yes. that it is suddenly a problem to use for example, and this is the thing that I care deeply about because I'm pregnant at the moment and dealing with all this stuff, you know, words like mother, words like woman, words like uh, breastfeeding, you know, things like that in, in uh, kind of the realm of mm. medicine. And that that's not only artificial because most women, when they get pregnant, want to be called to be mothers. Yeah. Um, but it's I mean, also I can't imagine damaging one that wouldn't. Well, yeah, I mean, this is the other farcical thing is, um, and I think this is a sort of, un, it's a point that doesn't get made enough, is that all of this is being particularly the gender inclusive side of things is being done in the name of trans people. And there's this suggestion that trans people, the you know, small minority of section society as they are, but anyway, this group of people are so incredibly touchy, so incredibly fragile and hostile to the rest of society, that they see all forms of sort of normal language, gendered language as an affront. And actually, and that on the flip side, particularly in the world of healthcare, that everyone is just out to upset people. So every nurse you meet is just, you know, really um, champing at the bit to call a trans man a she or something like that. And that's just, it's nonsense. There are, you know, in particular in the realm of healthcare, people have been dealing with difference and personal preference on an informal basis for years <laughs> and uh, there is a real nasty characterization of both how fragile trans people are but also of how ignorant and transphobic the rest of us yes. are and i think that's a characterization we should all resist absolutely because we're always accused of not 
um, of, of getting worked up over nothing. You know, like what difference does it make what word you use? Well, in that case, what difference does it make to anyone what word is used? In which case you defeat your own argument. But I mean, just look at some of the examples we're given here in the Google Docs tool, right? John F. Kennedy's inauguration speech apparently would have suggested changing for all mankind to for all humanity. Worse than that, um, the Sermon on the Mount by one Jesus Christ, um, whether you believe it happened or not, should not have talked about God's wonderful works, but should have considered calling them great, marvellous or lovely. And Martin Luther King, believe it or not, should have talked of the intense urgency of now, not the fierce urgency, which is nowhere near as good. What's wrong with fierce? I mean, it's also historically inaccurate, and that's a really important point, which is this happened actually in relation to, I think it was, I might be wrong, I think it was the ACLU changed a quote from Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, which had used the word woman in it, and um, they changed it to use the word people or something like a gender inclusive. Now, that that is a revision of history of which every history teacher in the world would kind of bulk out. That's the kind of thing you tell your students off for, yeah. misquoting someone. I'm not only misquoting them, but completely changing the political nature of what that woman said at mm. that time. And um, that's that's a real problem because what you're doing is you're rewriting history. That's what we accuse um, political dictators of doing, yeah. you know, thinking of uh, Putin at the moment. That's what we accuse... Um, ignorant people of doing of not respecting the truth of what happened mm. what is the point of history if we don't if we're not um, in search of what really truly happened and what was really truly said so that kind of growing backwards and, pre- and also this really stupid idea of pretending that the same views and values that we have in 2022 were held in yes. 1952 or even 1992 yeah. um, is a, I think that's a really, that's actually taken very seriously. That's a really dangerous drive to basically eradicate truth, which cannot be allowed to happen. No, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I was talking to John Rental earlier on today about, you know, the Tony Blair era when he came in in 1997. Britain was a very different country. Um, you know, there were things that were going on in the 90s that, that just wouldn't happen now. Not necessarily good things, but not necessarily bad things either. You know, we've also got, I mean, we had a bit of a joke this, uh, earlier on in the show. We had Simon Calder down in Southampton on a brand new cruise ship talking to us from there. Uh, and he referred and he told me off for saying it instead of she. Uh, and I said, well, I wouldn't want to misgender a ship, you know, because apparently I'm surprised that somebody hasn't done that and said, well, hang on a minute. How do you know the ship is a she just because they've always been she? Maybe they're not she. Maybe they're they. Yeah, who 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 can guess <laughs> the biological or social? But, I mean, this is where we've ended. This is where we've ended up, you know. And I think that you know that's the thing. That if we have a situation in which we are ultra nervous about the way we interact with each other, rather than being you know open and sympathetic to, I think most decent people approach daily life talking to you know strangers people they don't know um in an open way no one wants to go around upsetting people you know that's that's just common sense yeah, right. otherwise you really you're, you're you're not a nice person you've got bigger problems than gender neutral language um but there is this there's this real hostility to um give people the benefit of the doubt so the idea that you might misgender someone and that maybe you'd say you know, that would that would write you off as a phobic forever rather than um, being able to say or you know, have a conversation and have a bit of flexibility in it. Uh, I think also we just have to be careful because so much of the stuff 
And so much of this row happens on social media, yeah. which is not normal life. Um, particularly Twitter is, in, as we know, um, in, intensely um, shrill middle-class kind of zone um, yeah. of, of which you know people like me have to engage with because yes. of politics. But if you go out and step out on the street and talk to a normal person who does a normal job outside of the world of Westminster or, or kind of academia or wherever it is, and talk to them about this, they have usually far more progressive open and uh, common sense views than your average tweeter does. I think that's such an important point to make as well, because we all, I'm like you, I mean, I think if I didn't have this job, I don't think I'd be on anywhere near Twitter, you know, because it is the most bizarre kind of place to be. And if you live your entire life there, as some people do, um, I think it actually sort of, you know, completely zonks out what real life is because it's not real life and even the views that are expressed there and even the kind of um, the majority views that are expressed there are not majority views in any other uh, section of society no um they're not and you i think that the one of the problems is um so much of politics and indeed so much of pol what politicians decide to do now is based on twitter reaction um so you have there's this sort of blurred reality which suggests that uh, the amount of retweets a, a complaint or a criticism gets on twitter is indicative of public sentiment mm. you know so many politicians these days um don't bother talking to their constituents or don't bother even with their speeches in the house of commons and and do everything you know more focus on what they're tweeting or indeed their speeches are geared towards how many retweets they're going to get on twitter from a certain section this is part of the reason we know that the labor party is currently in a complete mess as to how it understands the use of language when it comes to women and things like that, because they've just lost their sense of um, reality of that, the, that kind of the discussion that's going on about gender on social media in these extreme terms mm. is not how their average voter thinks. And uh, that, you know, I think that kind of lack of cowardly lack of being able to engage in reality because Twitter in the end, despite what everyone says, it's a very safe space. You're not face to face. You're not really getting challenged. No. There is anonymity and all of that online. Um, I think that's part also of you can block people, which means you don't actually have to listen to anything they say, which you can't really do in the real world, can you? No, <laughs> and it's not to say that I think we should all be shouting at each other on the street or that you know bad behaviour is acceptable on online or or offline. But it's that I think we need to just be a bit more grown up and um, a, a bit more robust in our ability to say we don't need Google or indeed the government in relation to the online safety bill, big tech or whoever it is coming in to um, suggest to constrain the limits of what we can talk about with each other online or offline in a democracy where you're supposed to, the free, you know, the principle of freedom of speech is supposed to be at the bedrock of democracy. I wish it were in this country, but it's somewhat compromised and in danger. Um, you trust citizens to be able to talk to each other and have conversations about the important things in the world, whether that's the, the, the language we use or the policies we defend or the actions we take. And if you don't have that trust in the public, then you're no longer acting as democracy. You're acting something more like more akin to a kind of authoritarian regime that wants to control what people think and say. Mm. I don't think we're quite there yet, but there's a whiff of it about with oh, all this sure. sort of control. Absolutely. Ella, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed, and thanks for taking the time uh, to spend with us. Ella Whelan there from Spikes Online. It's crazy, isn't it? Oh, 
No, sorry, I can't say that. Baffling, apparently, is the word instead of crazy. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Hi. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 